I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. Today we're going to talk about VHS 94, the fourth VHS film in the beloved anthology series. We have director Jennifer Reeder with us, the director of the sinister wraparound story, Holy Hell. She's going to spill her guts to us in an exclusive interview. All that and more today on High on Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. Now it's time for Strain Wreck, the segment where John and I discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in each episode. Today, I got us a couple of options here. We're gonna I either. What you got. Yeah, they're both hybrids. They're both fucking beautiful looking. Uh, they both smell good. They're both gassy. We got Perfecto here with. Uh, you'll like this bag. That's all I'm gonna say. So uh, we got Perfecto here, and then we got Dunce. Um, Dunce. Dunce is just. It's it's like. It's a form of runts. Um, you smoking and, and you dunce. It's <laughs> and uh, yeah. So I want you to check check these out. I mean, dude, they're so good. Right. You pick. You pick so, what we're gonna do tonight. Okay, the dunce does just look like nerds. Oh, perfecto. Okay, we got we got James Harden playing defense. Uh, you don't. Uh, you don't really follow basketball. No, but, no, I don't care for the I bag. Mean, I want what's in the bag. <laughs> James Harden's defense, you could compare it to like BJ Penn's stamina or like Luke Rockholt's chin. You know what I mean? Oh, damn. Or <laughs> or, uh, or Conor McGregor and Chris Weidman's legs. Ugh. Those were rough. But also taking the shot as my man, Steph Curry, with the shot. <laughs> they cook it with the sauce, Chef Curry with the pot, boy. <laughs> yeah, I know. No 360 idea. with the riz, boy. <laughs> I have no idea what any of that shit means. <laughs> I don't. I would not expect you to. You might as well just like. Okay. Let's see which one smells better. I smelled Steph. <laughs> yeah, that one's that bag is kind of weak looking, but it's good shit. I feel like I feel like the Perfecto got more of a smell to. I feel like there's. But look at them. Look at how dark they both are. Did you look at the buds? I mean, that one. I fuck already. Yeah, I mean, like, look at that shit. Just ice. If I could wear that, ice. if I could wear that as a necklace, I would. That's enough ice to put <laughs> why, on a chain. Why would you That's wear enough ice to put nug, on a chain. A nug necklace. That's. I mean, could you imagine if it was like a pearl necklace, and you just like it was like, a, but it was like nugs. And you just like plucked, plucked one off and just smoked it. I don't know why you wear it like like uh wear it like fucking garlic like you would wear around a vampire. He's got nugs of weed hanging. I would do it. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> this is definitely a lighter color, the dunce than the uh, perfecto. Yeah, you could tell the perfecto was uh, in, a, in more of a uh, grown in a dark room. I think I'm gonna go it. with the dunce. Okay, cool, cool. So hey, while uh, while you're getting that ready, I was thinking, like, I was gonna ask you, what do you think the highest you've ever been? at a movie theater is do you have like a memory that you can think of like because i mean i'm always high at the movie so are you so i mean i was just like i can pinpoint a time can you okay well there is uh there's getting high in, also getting high in the theater but uh <laughs> i mean you shouldn't do that now no, um, no. anyway the I, highest i've been going to a movie has to be world war z kenny and i were fucking blitzed 
And <laughs> I remember it was back when I worked at the movie theater and we thought it was amazing. I go to work a couple days later. One of my managers is like, did you see World War Z? I'm like, yeah, man. And he was <laughs> like, he's like, that movie was terrible. I was like, man, I loved it. And he was like, what did you love about it? And then I started thinking and I was like, I don't remember any of this movie, just except I was high shit and there was fucking zombies climbing walls and shit. <laughs> he loved and, the experience and of Brad, watching and it And Brad high. Pitt, like, uh, injected himself with AIDS or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, I kind of, uh, well, first, before I get into my story, I was just going to bring up, when you worked at the movie theater, that was awesome. I remember watching Fury. And uh, we we saw Fury. We watched Fury at like after midnight on like a Wednesday, and uh, <laughs> yeah. like it was just like me and your bosses and uh, like one other person, and we we're like passing f- fucking blunts and bowls in the middle of the theater, like all empty and shit, just watching Fury. And that movie actually kicked ass. That was a really good movie. <laughs> yeah, I won't mention anybody else's names because we were uh, spoken in the theater, but. That was was one of the benefits. Yeah. Like the other one is I got to see, um, the, I think it was the first Hobbit movie I got to see before, like a couple days before it came out. And that was pretty cool. But they didn't give a shit at that theater though, man. That thing was falling apart towards the end. They had like fucking caution tape up around like two thirds of the seats (laughs) and shit. So who cares about it? Who cares if you smoke a blunt? You got a health hazard in that motherfucker. I mean, you had to you had to smoke blunts to work there. <laughs> so, I mean, I kind of got like, I mean, so you didn't really have a horror movie as your answer. So I guess like, I mean, I don't, World, World War Z, you want to consider that a horror movie? Well, World War Z, I guess so. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I was thinking. I mean, 28, uh, I was thinking consider like, 28 days later. No, yeah. World War Z is definitely, uh, definitely a horror movie. I was just, um actually thinking of it more in the uh, action aspect but yeah you know i i, w- I would consider that horror. you're right um and it's packed but up. my so i have like a horror one though like i have a um i have a horror movie that i can like list like where i was the highest that i went to a theater but then i have like just like an experience of when i was like the highest i've ever been in a movie so like which story do i tell do i tell the horror or do i tell the non I'll, I guess I'll just tell them both. The, the The highest I've ever been going to a horror movie was probably, I would definitely say that it was 2017 It Chapter 1. Um, I pre-gamed with several blunts before getting together with friends where we pre-gamed with several blunts before we got to the theater and smoked more blunts before we went into the theater and watched the movie. And I was absolutely gone. I remember I was so high. I was actually scared. Like I was like, I really hope that I remember this movie tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I don't have the same story with it, but uh, I back when I had movie pass, I saw it like four or five times. And I saw it on Halloween Eve one time. And I was the only person in the theater. It was it chapter one. And that... I was never creeped out before watching it, but, but sitting in a dark theater by myself right around Halloween, that was pretty creepy. Yeah, I can imagine. Damn, um, couldn't even wait to horror history, huh? Nah, man, we got to try it out now. <laughs> we got to try it out now. Um, but yeah, so uh, the highest I've ever been going to a movie uh, in general is uh, 
back when the first Expendables film came out. Um, I remember uh, I w- it was like my birthday. It was the day before my birthday, and my wife took me to see it. And uh, it was like an early morning show. It was like 11 a.m., and there was like nobody in the theater. And I was so baked. I had pre-gamed so hard as awake and baked that morning that I was like holding on. I had to hold on to like the railing and seats as I was like walking because I was like <laughs> fucking so high. I was like I felt dizzy. And I just remember like the whole like first 40 minutes of the movie, I was trying to convince my wife to give me a head job in the theater. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. I was like, there's nobody here. There's nobody here. It's my fucking birthday. It's nope. my birthday. Nope. <laughs> you think that I get you think I get the, the respect I deserve? Nope. No, no, no. But seriously, no. You know, she yeah, obviously she rejected me like she should have. But yeah, that was uh I re- I just remember that was a hilarious moment because, you know, like that's just so unlike me. And I was just so like out of the moment and just enjoying myself that I was like, <laughs> let's get wild, let's get wild. And she was like, No, I'm not getting wild. <laughs> Well, uh, my my story isn't nearly as entertaining as that with a general movie. I was going to say the next highest I got was probably when I worked at the movie theater, but it wasn't in the theater after hours. But uh, <laughs> I went by myself. I saw Interstellar. Not the best. Theater wasn't the best to watch. I mean, it was still on film. But I, I was just so high that, like, I, and I was by myself that I just felt totally immersed in that movie. It's still, like, one of my favorite movie viewing experiences. I just, like, dude, I don't know. It was, it was it, it came out, like, super trippy just being by myself or, like, watching Interstellar. It was awesome. Totally. Well, there was no hand job stories or attempted no hand handies, jobs. No handies. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, wh- can you name a movie, like, where you've been so baked when you watched it that you like love it and then later you try to get somebody to watch it and they just do not share the same enthusiasm for the movie at all that you do big lebowski big lebowski yeah like that just that seemed like well actually more more recently that was psycho gorman i was so baked when i saw that movie and i uh i remember like i got you know my wife to watch it and then i got you know you and our friend kenny to watch it and I, every time I made, you know, someone else watch it, I made my wife watch it, I made you and Kenny watch it, I was like, are they going to enjoy it as much as I did? Because, I mean, I was ripped. And that movie's like, if you can look at that movie as either awesome or hella corny. So I was kind of, you know, like, in between. And luckily for me, like, all of you guys ended up loving it. So that was actually a hit. But it does happen where I'll watch a movie and then everybody will just be, eh. I mean, I'm too big to think of one now, but I mean, it's not worth revisiting the heartache anyway. You hate when you try to share something you love with somebody and they just do not care. Nicole does not care about Big Lebowski. I've tried, I've tried to persuade her over the years and she goes, I don't get it. It just, I've, but I do feel like that's just like Big Lebowski is one of those movies. Either you love it or you just get it for what it is. It's an acquired taste. <laughs> I don't know why you went parked a wreck on me, but but it's yeah, it's one of those movies that people just either love it or they hate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely I feel like love that's it. a way with a lot of Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I'm I'm a Coen Brothers fan. I definitely am a fan. Um, anywho, let's get back on track, brother. Um, we're already sparked up, so let's get on uh, with let's get on with horror history. This week in horror history. All right, so this week, we, we got some good ones. We got Reanimator from 1985. Uh, an underrated classic, I think, The Dennis from 1996. Corbin Benson's great in it. Totally. It's just it's a ridiculous movie. If you haven't seen it, it's just about a dentist who finds his wife having an affair, and he just takes it out on his patients. 
Man, I remember as a young boy, well, I was like, you know, probably like 13, 12, 13 when I watched it. I remember seeing, uh, his, he's like watching his wife out the window, giving the pool dude, to, the, the pool guy a BJ. And I just remember thinking, damn, this movie's going there quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll keep moving on here, though. But we got. Oh, you're going to make me end on that note? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fine. Corbin Benson is also amazing in the Major League movies. I love those movies. Okay, cool. Uh, Night of the Living Dead from 1990, uh, 30 Days a Night from 2007, uh, 13 Ghosts from 2001. Uh, we had The Prince of Darkness, 1987, which uh, it'll get brought up later, but uh, I kind of got a Prince of Darkness vibe at one point in the VHS 94. Uh, but the two we're going to look at today is The Ring, the U.S. release from 2002 and Halloween 4. I mean, it is October. So the return of Michael Myers, nineteen eighty-eight. Which one do you want to start with? Let's talk about Halloween. I mean, we had Halloween three just recently. We talked to Stacy Nelkin. Yeah. And then uh, the uh, box office wasn't so great on that one, so uh, we needed to bring Michael back for uh, part four. Yeah, with uh, Mustafa Akkad behind the uh, behind the whole production. He did not ever want to see the Halloween franchise end, ever. No, he definitely did not. And uh, I'll be the first to tell you, a lot of people love Halloween 4, and like it's a lot of people's favorite and second favorite. Not, It's not my second favorite or my third favorite or my fourth favorite. Um, I like it more than, like, I like it more than, say, 6. Um, I like it more than Resurrection. I like it more than Rob Zombie's movies, and that's about it. I pretty much, I like, you know, one, two, three, uh, H2O, 2018, and Halloween Kills. Like, I like all of those over Halloween 4, so not a favorite of mine. I would rank Halloween 4 behind one, two, and three. And then every movie that came after it until Halloween 18, I think Halloween 4 is better than. Oh, okay. I, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not a big fan of H2O. That mask just, <laughs> that's, yeah. it takes me out of it. Like I've said before, like Halloween 6 is terrible, but the mask in Halloween 6, or I'm sorry, it's not really Halloween 6. It's just Curse of Michael Myers, but it's better than h2o especially that digital mask that no, i mean i mean the digital mask sucks um <laughs> but i, I got it so i'm gonna bad. i'm gonna hard disagree on that man i hate the mask in part six i fucking hate the mask in part six so i don't know why you hate the mask in part I don't, six it's I don't, top it's top three i don't i don't dig it um i put it after one and two in terms of mask i'd put six really i if it, i would do one two and i would do one two in, in 2018 but I almost kind of like it's weird when I rank it because I'm like, part two was still the same mask. It looks different because it wasn't taken care of. And 2018 is really also supposed to be the same mask. I mean, they are different designs, but I guess you should consider them their own mask. Yeah, well, like the thing about Halloween 4, though, that bothers me is it's the same thing as um in uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, how you get no Crystal Lake. And then in Jason Goes to Hell, you get no Jason. It's kind of like the same thing in a way with Halloween four because Halloween in Halloween for Halloween four and five I mean because in Halloween four, um, Michael Myers passes you know the whole 
curse on to Jamie Lloyd. And uh, so I'm not a big fan of the whole like passing it along thing. And that happened at the end of four. So that that's one of the reasons I don't like it. And then in Halloween five, they made him cry. And like that, like Michael Myers crying is like the greatest, besides Rob Zombie's films, it is the greatest carnal sin in the series. Um, just, just Michael Myers crying. Are you fucking kidding me? Just to turn around and later have him fucking using a knife, a real knife, mind you, to stab through a fucking uh, laundry chute shaft to fucking to, to stab a little girl. But you know he's gonna he's gonna shed a tear. It's just yeah, um, not and a, not a fan of crying. Harris in danger. Yeah, yeah, like it, for real. That's what I'm saying. But but just but yeah, not a fan of the tears and not you, not a fan of Dominique or Thin Gerard or however you say his name. No, it, and you have to admit though, of all the good things from Halloween Four. For part five, he just took it and threw them away. Yeah, well, I think to me, the the greatest, and it's like, I'm not saying that I don't like other scenes of the movie, you know, and, and the kills and stuff, but, um, like, my favorite thing about Halloween 4 is the opening scene, man. The opening credit scene where it's just like, oh, the, it's great. The autumn, the autumn, like, scenery with the town and everything, and it just looks deserted. Like, yeah, that, that opening scene just feels so Halloween to me. Yeah, and I have to say, I did get to see Halloween 4 in theaters. I got to see uh, 4 and 5. They did a double feature that night, and it was pretty cool. Uh, there was problems with the movie, and this guy made a joke. It was like, oh, I don't know how the movie ends. And some woman goes, yeah, I don't know how it ends either. And her date goes, you've never seen this movie? And she was like, no, he's like, it came out in 1988. Like, how have you not seen this movie? And then, uh, sadly, I found out later he was a Rob Zombie fan, but, uh, yeah, I know. Well... The worst, the worst fans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's a knowledge nugget for you. Uh, the drugstore used in Halloween 4 was also the drugstore set used in Stephen King's The Stand miniseries directed by Mick Garris back in 1994. I mean, that's interesting. I don't think there's any connection. <laughs> <laughs> that set has stories to tell if it could talk man uh and then uh let's get on over to the ring here cool i hadn't seen that in years it was on my uh list for movies this month for the list of 31 i still like it every time i go to watch it i always think i'm gonna like it less but it's a good movie it's creepy like i remember i saw it on halloween one year i well, i guess 2002 uh, and that movie creeped the shit out of me. I was like 16. Yeah. And that movie creeped me out for a while. And it's still a, it's still really well done. Brian Cox is an underrated actor. That guy is great in everything I see him in. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I love Brian Cox. A hundred percent. Yeah. He, he's great in everything he's in. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dis. I mean, um, he was in Troy. Uh, I thought he was great in that. He was great. He was in X Men Two, X Men United, Super Troopers. Yeah, he's he's in so many movies that I just that that are Trick good. or Treat. Yeah, oh yeah, Trick or Treat. You know, like yeah, just like I, and Red. There's this movie about him. Like there's these people. These like his dog gets killed and he kind of goes on like a John Wick thing. So it's like yeah, he's he's awesome. <laughs> you said Red. I was thinking of Red Eye, but his role's very small in that. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, um, uh, I. I'm a fan of of the ring as well. I saw that first before I saw the Japanese ring you. Um, I didn't even know at the time that uh, I hadn't really, you know, dabbled in uh, J horror yet, and so you know, yeah, I was unaware that it was was a, I guess remake. Yeah, back in, yeah, so uh, you know, I watched the uh, 
the 2002 one and i definitely liked it the whole thing with like you know samara coming out of the tv at the end that was i think that was everybody's like holy shit moment that's what everybody brought up when they talked about it because like, you're dude, not expecting that dude, shit at i all. was in theaters and i was like okay so like what's gonna happen i was right. like holy shit she came out of a fucking tv yeah and it's, it's good you know and i definitely like it but uh um i actually really do like the um i like the original ring you more um the Japanese film from 1998, uh, Knowledge Nugget, at the time of its release in 1998, it was the highest grossing horror film in Japanese history. Um, but yeah, um, the 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 thing about Ringu that I wasn't expecting was that it actually downplays the makeup, but the way it's done, the atmospheric horror of it actually makes it scary. Like, you know how in, in the 2002 one, like when they find the the uh, girl from the beginning of the film in the closet and her jaw's all like hanging mm-hmm. and she's all like decrepit yeah. looking? Like, they don't look like that in the, uh, in the Ringu movie. Like, uh, they just look like normal. Um, but it's like, it's the way it's done and it's the camera angles that just like creep you out. I actually remembered like, that's what I took away from it is like, they actually did more with less. So that was really impressive to me. And so like, I actually, I'm not taking anything away from the 2002 when they did a great job. It had, you know, a great cast, great production quality, but the, the, the original like Japanese movie actually really got under my skin. You know, Hideo Nakata fucking directed the shit out of that movie. And like, definitely, yeah, like. It's it's just one of those ones that you wouldn't expect it to be better because it was like ever all the effects and stuff in the two thousand two one, but the 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 creepiness of it surpasses. I think visually two thousand and two wins. Let me put it that way. The visual, like the the way it's like the cinematography of that movie is beautiful. It's not like that in Ringu, but Ringu is definitely like creepier, and it's just crazy how it's creepier because there it's just like I said, more with less. Yeah, The Ring is a very visually beautiful movie. I I I, I like that it's it's just always kind of rainy and dark, and, and there's blue. just that like overtone of just like depression overall. Right, and, and it's very artsy. You can it's like it's, a very, it's very artsy, but at the same time, it's like not like beating you over the head with it. And okay, look, I got to ask a question here. Nicole and I had this discussion after we watched it. She 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 couldn't give me an answer. So at the end of the movie, you know, uh, Rachel, Rachel has her son make a copy of the, of the tape. They f- figure out that's how, that's how you stop. Yeah, from yeah, dying. yeah. Yeah. My question is, does it always have to be a VHS tape? Could somebody upgrade it? Like I said, you know, eventually could they upgrade it to 4k? Is that okay? If you put it on a Blu-ray, <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> does it, is the rule that it has like, is I it think, just I a think copy? Samara might show up at your house, like ready to fuck you up. And then when she like, you like, probably do to, to break down like, the technology no. to her and then she'd be like oh oh so you still pass my story along all right i'll leave you alone okay because like my question was like i mean like is it just directly a copy like could netflix throw this shit out on uh like streaming yeah I, I think it's more about getting her story i think it was more about getting her story out there so i think that uh if it evolved uh, if it evolved like, i if mean I, could i buy it on voodoo and i'd be good yeah i think that would yeah i mean but but i don't know who the evil sadistic motherfucker would be that would upload it to that dude is trying to get out of like that is brilliant that is a brilliant way to get out of samara ever coming after you just like straight it. up just just put it on voodoo and you're good like right. you're good and put it on youtube you're good yeah yeah nicole nicole couldn't give me an answer i didn't know if it had to be linked to the technology if it still had to just be a vhs tape well, if her, she wants her story to go on and on and on, she's going to have to move along with the times like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, 
But that's listen. true because it looks like maybe when she died, there wasn't VHS tapes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, or like they were like probably like brand new. Like it was yeah. a new. It was a new thing. So yeah. Yeah, and it's the white that they used was just really weird. I don't think I've really seen that in any other movie. It's kind of like washed out. Yeah. Yeah. I really like, like I said, the coloring and everything. I always think of the scene when they're on the boat with the horse and like those, like those blues. That like, is, yeah. 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 It's so beautiful. And then that horse just fucking snaps. I know, dude. It's yeah. Yeah. I, I, that movie is a, it's, it's funny because it's one of those ones like the sixth sense where, uh, you, it's so good, but it's one that like, I, I rarely get to because it's so good that I'm kind of like, I almost want to preserve it. But at the same time, yeah. you're like it just it just doesn't come around often, and you're kind of like it's so good. I remember it so well. I kind of feel like I don't need to rewatch it. You know what I mean? It's one of those ones, but like I actually probably really do need to rewatch it. Yeah, it's it was it had been a been several years since I've seen. I'd probably say say at least five or six years since I saw it, and it it holds up. It's I always have like these handful of movies that I'll go back to watch, and I'll be like every it'll be a long time in between watch them and i think before i watch them like do i remember liking this more than i did and then i'll watch and i'll be like no that movie's great <laughs> yep yep that happens absolutely and a question about it uh well i think now it's time to get on to puff puff ass the segment of our show where drew and i answer questions you send us through instagram facebook and twitter at high on horror 420 and through email at high on horror 420 at gmail.com All right, I'll start. I'll start us off here with a question from a listener named Floyd from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor, ugh. <laughs> go Buckeyes! Oh, I'm yeah. not going to get an answer. But if Kenny was here, he would have said I.O. Yeah, uh, again, I don't do the sports <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, Floyd here he asked an interesting question. Uh, it's actually something that's kind of funny to me, so I wanted to bring it up. Um, he says. Hey guys, love the podcast. Wondering, have you guys ever played with a Ouija board or dabbled in the occult? Um, that's a, that's a good question because it's not about horror movies, but it's still horror related. So I'm gonna go with it. My answer, um, I have never in my life touched a Ouija board with my hands. I have never. I've been terrified of them since i've seen the exorcist and before them i had no idea before watching the exorcist i had no idea what the hell they were and had no interest in them after i found out what you know a ouija board was i wasn't going near that fucking thing i even remember i was at my friend's house one time and uh his sister my friend's sister had a birthday party and one of the gifts that she was gifted was a ouija board a brand new ouija board and uh, I remember he waited until she was outside with her friends doing something. I don't know what the hell was going on, like they were playing a game or pinata or something. But uh, actually, he took the time while she wasn't around to take the Ouija board that she was gifted and go drop it behind the washer and dryer in the basement so she could never find it because he didn't want her fucking with it. So yeah, no, uh, I don't do the Ouija board, and uh, I don't, I don't do the cult, the, uh, the I don't dabble in the occult. Um, like that's kind of vague. The occult, like you talk about, like sacrificing goats to like pop them <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe reading I'm like getting that wrong is who you're supposed to sacrifice to. But you maybe get the like point. I was thinking maybe like reading uh 
reading the satanic bible or like even like Necronomicon. even being like i mean does it even being psychic kind of counts as like dabbling in the occult in a way so i mean miss cleo call me now yeah no i don't really dabble in the occult um i'm not like i'm not a witch or anything like that or a wiccan i don't have anything look be whatever religion you want to be warlock, though. <laughs> be whatever religion you want to be if you want to be a witch a wiccan a christian an atheist uh a nihilist like me <laughs> if you want to be you know um yeah b- believe in whatever you want to believe in i'm not judging anybody but no i don't dabble in the in the occult whatsoever um i'm not i don't i don't practice anything i wouldn't practice anything uh um let me put it this way i forget who once said this but i'm i'm gonna use it um as 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 far as like the supernatural and the devil and all that shit goes i don't believe in it but i respect it enough not to fuck with it that's my final answer I had to bring up a Dick War Warlock reference, so I always bring him up whenever I can. I just thought you were over there talking about Dick. No, I was talking about the legend Dick Warlock. Greatest name in history. He, I mean, yeah. Second best, Mike, well, first best Michael Myers name. <laughs> at, least, at least he got the best on that. Anyway, I have not messed with a Ouija board. My mom, very uh, Christian conservative, so she was always warning me about all all kinds of stuff with ouija boards now like i mean i don't know why i would use one i'd be i i would be the guy there the whole time this is ridiculous why are we doing this (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't have any problems with them i mean but but so here's the thing okay so so you're not you're not scared of it at all you're less scared of it than me because well maybe not less scared of it but you don't even have the respect for it that i do no. so out that's of that's why i so would if it, if it, ended if it up ever being came real, up would you do it like is it possible if like you're over like you're one of some of your friend's house and y'all are smoking and a ouija board pops out like you're you do it i mean sure oh shit we, we could do it on if the show. you ever do that let me know because <laughs> you ain't coming back in my house <laughs> I'd be you like Jonah that, Hill and Mrs. E. The I power of Christ compels you. Oh, does it really? <laughs> Something really un- un- chill happened last night. Uh, uh, did you ever read anything like the Satanic Bible, though, or like the, the Necronomicon? No, I don't really have an interest. I, I've, I, I've read both. Um, like, again, I wouldn't consider that dabbling, but... Um, I went through like a big Marilyn Manson kick in like the mid nineties. I never like got late nineties. Uh, I still like his music, man. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, I went through a kind of a Marilyn Manson thing. So you know that was I got you know people that that was the type of shit that went around in the circle of Manson fans back then. And that's conservative compared to like some of the shit that went around in, in Manson circles. But uh, yeah, no. Um, so you haven't even read like you've never even like so so much as read a book. That's pretty cool. Like. So you haven't dabbled either, then? No, I don't really have an interest to. I mean, but if somebody wants to do a Ouija board, sure, I'll do it. But I'll complain the whole time, probably. Uh, Yeah, I mean, mean, I'm going to put it this way. Look, see, I would see if the stuff was real, it would come after me first because I'd fuck around and have no respect for it. (laughs) So if it turned out to somehow be real, I'd be the first one to go. No, see, that's just it. That's the... uh, that's that's the common misconception is like people always say you know like oh i'm the asshole so i'm gonna be the one that gets like possessed or whatever but it's actually the opposite because like they are they go for the pure of heart normally the, you know like so are you saying so, i ain't pure of heart no I, you'd probably be the first to die <laughs> but you wouldn't be the first possessed you'd be the first victim in a horror movie for sure oh for sure <laughs> um but yeah um 
Yeah, no, I don't. I don't mess with that stuff. Uh, what's your question? You got a question from somebody over there? <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. Thank you for writing this. So I can talk about it some more. But uh, Cam oh, from C Pleasant, Maryland. I did not know that's a real place. You ever heard of C Pleasant, Maryland? C <laughs> Pleasant? Nope. I mean, and that's just one state over. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Our man Cam, we just shit it all over your city. Uh, he said, "Why do I hate Rob Zombie's Halloween so much? Uh-oh. And have I ever seen any other Rob Zombie movies?" So I'll answer the second question first. Because I hate Rob Zombie's Halloween so first, I've decided to ban watching my ban myself from watching any Rob Zombie movies. Now I told Drew if Rob Zombie ever came on our podcast, which is never ever going to probably happen, I will watch his other movies and give them a fair shake. But Rob Zombie's Halloween, I don't like it because it's not Halloween. Like. And then some of his criticisms of Carpenter, such as how did Michael drive a car 160 miles overnight? That's ridiculous. Oh, but my Michael can walk 160 miles overnight. Not only that, he looks like a bodybuilder and he's seven feet tall. And he survives getting shot in the face, like point blank. I will give Rob Zombie credit on that. I hate to say it because apparently he did not want to do a sequel. So he was, that was them killing Michael off there. But have you ever heard his explanation? He goes, I don't know. Maybe Laurie's like a bad shot or something. That's like literally <laughs> what he said. Like, he can't it, but he didn't no, work hard on that. Look, uh, uh, you're missing out by not watching at least some of his other works. I'm not going to say everything. I mean, there's still some shit besides Halloween that's just kind of out there, like Lords of the Lords of Salem and stuff. But, um, Rob Zombie's that type of guy. He said actually in an interview that I watched that they asked him what his method is, like when he's writing a movie or you know coming up with music, like what he does. And he said that his just thing find is, a bunch of hillbillies. <laughs> he said that he uh, just like wakes up at four in the morning, turns on the pot of coffee, and then just sits down and thinks like, what can I come up with today? And I think that pretty much explains the fucking lack of a, a good backstory for halloween that is exactly how that seems to me is just you know hmm what would make somebody a killer oh i know being bullied it's like yeah that's everybody that's not pure evil michael myers is supposed to be pure evil you made michael myers an emo kid who <laughs> who, who turned psycho like that's not that's not the backstory michael needed everybody always always is always like oh they but you know i like that it had a backstory okay it had a backstory but was it a good backstory no it was white trash bullshit it was not halloween had that movie been called you know you know like the life and death of Mark Tripp. I don't know who Mark Tripp is. Just say whoever the killer's name is Mark Tripp for fuck's sake. And it's the same story. I probably would have been like, yeah, that movie's not bad. Like, you know, that that shows you how a dude becomes a killer, but that's not what I want to see out of Michael Myers or Halloween. And can we please talk about how ridiculous the kid looked in the Michael mask, Jason Judas in the hallway. That was all big on his head. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking huge. Michael mask. Yeah, it was fucking like, huge. He's just a little body. That's not scaring anybody. It's just comical. Like, yeah. Uh, but 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 back to what I was saying real quick. You are missing out, and you did have another stipulation besides Rob Zombie joining our show one day, being you know the reason why you would watch his other movies. You are committed to me, dude. You said that if you ever watch House of a Thousand Corpses or The Devil's Rejects, that it has to be with me. So don't try to renege on that now. That's definitely happening because I don't know. One day you might cave, but either way, don't no, forget about me. The only way I'm caving is if Rob Zombie's on our podcast. I pretty much laid this out. Like, I mean, it, it would. I've taken a principled stand. 
I wouldn't mind having him on the podcast to talk about him about other things, but at this point, I feel like I would be a peer mediator <laughs> if he was on our show. So I don't know. I don't, yeah, I, I'm gonna go. Ahead I don't and say, think if he ever listened to our show, <laughs> okay, if he ever listened to our show and listened to me, he would ever want to be on our show. No, and you know what? He he doesn't give a shit about what we're saying anyway. He, he literally <laughs> yeah. says he literally says you know like his opinion is his opinion. And, you know, if you don't like it, you know, like, fuck you. And I appreciate that, you know. We don't have to like his movie. He doesn't have to like what we say, you know. And that's facts. But, you know, he he is, was a talented filmmaker at a point. Uh, go back oh, to Halloween. Another bone I want to pick. You know, people complain about emotional Michael in part five. What about this Michael? He's literally trying to build a family. With with his like <laughs> former sister, yeah, that's like, true. <laughs> they're that's gonna live true. in the attic or some shit. shit I mean, weird. the thing about Rob Zombie's movies that can be such a letdown and Halloween for me is is, is a good example. Is that uh, he made Halloween into a music video? <sighs> the, no, the the he gets good cast, man. He had Brad Dourif in there, Sheriff yes. Brackett. He had uh, I can't I can't say anything D- bad about yeah, Brad. dude. D Wallace, um. You know Ken Forey, like he's like you know that just and Tyler Main plays Michael. You know he's got a lot of good actors in there, and uh, it's just it's just it's like just when you have all that all those things usually come together to make something special, and it just didn't. I don't know. I just feel that Rob Zombie tried to put too much of his own flavor on Halloween. And can we talk about Love Hurts? Uh. <laughs> oh man! Like I've said, I went in already thinking it. I already told myself it's not going to be John Carpenter's Halloween. And I was let down even more. And I went with my sister (laughs) and we're watching it. And his mom's stripping and it cuts to him sitting on the porch all like, hmm, like fucking Butters Mm -hmm, in South Park. mm -hmm. And just like (laughs) Butters in South Park. Just all pouting. And you just hear love hurts. And me and my sister both looked at each other and went, love hurts in a Halloween movie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and, and and that that actually it's funny because that stood out to me as well when when that happened i actually it was like i didn't literally do it but in my mind it was a face palm moment i'm like why are we being made to feel bad for him right now like why i don't want to feel bad for michael myers i want to be scared of him and uh you know and, and rowan and, loomis and and but but yeah but the thing is uh my, you know like i said that that affected me as well i i, I mentally face palmed when I saw that scene and my buddy who I was with, uh, who I was seeing the movie with at that point, literally told me after the movie, he said, yeah, as soon as, uh, love hurts came on, I just started like picking the paint off the, the theater wall that it was like next to my seat. I didn't even watch the movie. So <laughs> yeah, that, that, that broke the connection with a lot of people. Love hurts does not belong in a Halloween movie. And he, as I just <laughs> snuck in there, uh, he ruined Loomis. He may- it was more in the sequel that he ruined him, but the first one was, uh, yeah, I didn't care for him in the first one, but in the sequel, he was just a fucking dickhead. <laughs> oh, dude, it's so bad. And then, like, all of a sudden, he has a change of heart. Yeah, right. And uh, have you ever heard of why uh, the white horse is in there? Okay, so here, okay, here's my answer for that. No, I'm just saying for the movie just why it was put in there well that okay then that's this is my this is my answer there are movies like hereditary um and uh you know the babadook that i will like 
that are ambiguous that I'll kind of like look up online afterwards because I'm like, I want to know more about it. I didn't know everything, but I want to know about this. So I'll look it up to kind of, you know, what's this person's interpretation or what's that person's interpretation. And then there are those movies that are just boring as fuck and I can't stand them and I don't even care what the explanation is because it's not going to change my mind because I was still bored. And that's how I felt about The White Horse. Like, I this, yeah, it's been years and honest to God, I don't give a shit what the answer is. Like, it's not going to make me like the movie. No, I'm just saying, do you know... The reason it inspired him to put it in the movie. No. He said that he saw a white horse on a trip, thought it looked cool. He wanted to put it in the movie. And he added it to the movie when they were pretty much done. Like, inserted a huge plot point as the movie's wrapping. Jeez. (laughs) So that concludes why I dislike Rob Zombie, the short version of why I dislike Rob Zombie's movies. Well, yeah, um, so are you, are you done ranting? Do you have yeah, anything else you yeah, want to add? Yeah, I'm done ranting. All right, well, uh, for those of you listening out there, uh, don't forget to write in your questions to us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at highonhorror420 or email us at highonhorror420 at gmail.com. Write us. We love hearing from you. We've been getting some great mail lately. Uh, the, the, the questions are really cool. We love that, you know, people actually take time to send us messages, man. Thank you all. Um, let's get into our review slash discussion of this week's film now, VHS 94. VHS 94 is out now and available on Shudder, and we just recently got some information from Shudder Shutter, that it's their best debut, movie debut to date. And VHS 94 follows a police SWAT team investigating a mysterious VHS tape and discovers a sinister cult that has pre-recorded material, which uncovers a nightmarish conspiracy. <clears throat> and, uh... It was broken into uh, four, well, five segments, really, including the wraparound. But uh, the first one we got into was uh, Storm Drain. And uh, that followed a reporter and her cameraman who were investigating claims of a rat man in the sewers. Uh, Drew, what did you think of that one? Well, first of all, that Veggie Masher commercial directed by Stephen Kostansky, there we go, uh, that commercial was it fucking hilarious. It reminded me of Slap Chop. Yeah, the, the fact that, like, the vegetables just were not getting chopped up at all. It was so terribly done. It was just so, like, it was, it was hilarious. Um, but, you know, uh, I thought... That was, that was a commercial that was just inserted after one of the shorts. Yeah, correct, correct. It was uh, it was just a little a little commercial thrown in by uh, uh, Stephen Kostansky, the, the man behind the, the Void and Leprechaun Returns and Psycho Gorman. He's a very talented young filmmaker. Good movies. Yeah, um... And, uh, but, but no, um, storm drain was, uh, I thought storm drain was awesome. I thought that the, uh, the creature in it looks awesome. Um, it was just, it was, it was very creepy. I'll definitely say that. It was definitely definitely creepy. Um, the ending of it, I think the ending of that one left, uh, a little bit more to be desired for me, but uh, I think that was a strong, a strong effort, um, from, uh, Chloe Akuno. Uh, I'm a fan. What did you think of it? I liked it. It was one of my favorites. Uh, that and uh, the subject were probably my two favorites. The subject's definitely my favorite. Yeah, absolutely. But, but before we get to that, let's get to the second story. Yeah, let's the, talk about the second one. Yeah, the second one's Empty Wake, and it's a uh, funeral home 
And a young woman named Haley is assigned to host a wake for a man named Andrew Edwards. And her boss, Ronald, and another assistant team, Tim, team, Tim, leave the building for the night, explaining they're on a call away if she needs any help. And nobody shows up to this wake. And she keeps hearing knocking from the box. I have to say, when I first watched this, I was like, this is moving really slow. And then it picked up and I became a fan of it. I really enjoyed the second part of that. Yeah, it was it was creepy as hell. Um, I, I It did drag on a little bit, but that was a lot of build suspense because the whole time you're just like, I it know something's going to happen. I know something's going to happen. And it definitely does. It's definitely like that to me is like the... Uh, that to me is like the definition of a short film. It's one person in a room with chairs. That's and when you can pull off a story like that, um, where it's just like a, a, literally one person in a room with a coffin and chairs, and like you can still pull off a story with just that. It's pretty crazy, you know. Like that's the definition of short filmmaking for me to see somebody have one room and one person and they just make it work and all the person's doing is answering phone calls and being scared and you know because there's a thunderstorm outside and the power goes out it's uh very it carries a lot of dread with it it's very suspenseful yeah and yeah like i said it was very slow in the beginning but it does pay off 100 percent. and and that's that's not the way you'd expect it to no and i guess there's not really much more you can there's not much you can really say about Empty Wake without without giving spoilers, I think. Right. But Simon Barrett from uh, Your Next Fame and who did Seance that's on Shutter right now, he did it, and he's also very talented. So he's, oh, for sure. Yeah, so it's great seeing, you know, it's not a surprise that his effort, you know, stands out. And then uh, here, the third one, the subject, uh, that was both of our favorites. Uh, Timo, uh, the writer and director of it, did a great job. Uh, there's a Dr. James Suhendra. Am I saying that right? What do you think? That uh, sounds about right. Suhendra, yeah. Suhendra. He wants to make uh, cyborg people, basically. And uh, I have to say, one of the designs, tell me I'm wrong, looks like Evil Johnny 5. 100%. <laughs> yeah, man, definitely. There's a lot of interested designs, but yeah, one of them definitely, if, if you remember uh, Short Circuit, it the, the top of it looks like an evil Johnny Five. I mean, the, he looks the, angry as hell. Yeah, this this segment here by uh by Timo is uh, I mean, it's like uh the raid. The if you if anybody out there listening has, has watched the raid one or two, the Indonesian martial arts movies like this movie is literally those movies fused with frankenstein's army it's it's absolutely batshit like i would use the term batshit crazy to explain the segment but it's not in a bad way it's uh it's i actually had said a moment ago that this is my favorite uh segment i take that back it's not my favorite segment it is definitely my second favorite segment um but yeah, it's it's super strong, and the it's, like I said, it's batshit crazy, and the pace as well, and uh, it it just gets really it gets really crazy at the end, for sure. And uh, poor Jonah is all I'll say. I, I love I love Frankenstein stories though, and whenever you can you can incorporate one that still kind of like takes you back and shows you something you're not expecting and that pleases you, especially when it's a short, you know what I mean? Like on a limited budget, it's kind of impressive. Like that's the thing about short films. Like a lot of people are able to pull off some things and it's like, 
if you can pull that off with that budget, you know, like why aren't you out there making the, the, the blockbusters with the millions of dollars? Like if you can stretch a dollar like that, I mean, I think that shows a lot. And I was going to say, like, part of it felt almost like a first-person shooter, like first-person mode from, like, a video game. A video game. Yeah, I was just going to say it had, like, a total video game vibe to it. I mean, I guess you can kind of... Cyborgs kind of fit in pretty easily with that. Uh, Getting on to our fourth short here. uh, It's about an extremist religious group known as the First Patriots Movement Militia. And they're plotting to blow up a government building and take back America. This one, there's, it's more of you're trying to figure out what's going on with, with some stuff. I'm trying not to give anything away. Yeah, like It's almost like you think you know what's going on, but the whole time, I, little... I felt like the whole time you're trying to figure out like some, what's not adding up and then you get the explanation. You go, why didn't I figure that out myself? Yeah. But uh, that one, um, at first, it's funny. Like all, I, I like all all the segments, and this one kind of uh, like uh, empty wake. Uh, yeah, the empty wake. Um, I didn't think I was gonna like it at first, and then the second part got me and hooked me, and I thought it was really well done. It's, it, I would say it has funnier moments than any of the other segments. I think the one the one thing that that segment that uh, terror um, achieved is I think that that looked the most authentic out of all the stories. I think the the way that everybody was dressed and everything. I think that uh, like the clothing, uh, the scenery, the way everything was just done, the, the trucks and everything that was used. Uh, I felt that that looked the most like out of all the stories that looks like something I would be watching that you would watch on VHS, like just the quality of it and the way they looked. So I will say like the, the way that they pulled off the aging of just the way that just the cinematography and the casting and uh, the costume designer and all that stuff that came together to make that movie look like that. Just, you know, that, that segment just looks so, uh, it looks so authentic to being in the nineties. It's just crazy. Like I, you know, it, it really does. Yeah. And then, uh, well, of course, I guess I should have said this was my favorite, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, the wraparound I never really include in the shorts. I think of like each of the kind of self-contained stories, but we have the wraparound, holy hell. And, uh, it follows the SWAT team as they kind of go to these different rooms. Yeah. And then, this interweaves in between the, uh, other segments of the story. And I did not, I want to talk about it, but it, we can't, we can't for spoiler reasons, but the epilogue of holy hell, I thought was really well done. I, yeah, uh, holy hell. Um, it's kind of hard because when you're thinking of, so that's why I got tripped up earlier when I was talking about the subject and I said it was my favorite segment because you almost forget that like wraparounds are a segment in and of themselves. It's almost as if like, oh, uh, like, you know, you kind of, they're don't, a segment that gets split up. Four yes. Times. Yes. You kind of don't consider that a full segment. You're kind of just like, oh, that's just like the, almost like the in between. But when you consider it as a full segment, um, holy hell is definitely my favorite. Um, it's hard to pull off a wraparound story and, uh, like, you know, I immediately was like, we need to reach out to Jennifer. Like I was watching the credits of the film and I was like, that's like, we need to talk to to her because that was fucking crazy. Like what I liked about it was that it's just kind of cold and heartless. There was, there's no like 
remorse to it. It's just kind of like, this is what it is. Fuck you. It's very kind of punk rock. And I, I, I appreciate the shit out of it. I, I really liked it. And it's twisted to boot, man. It's, it's very like, it's, it's very twisted. And I feel like compared to the other VHS ones, this one did have more of a narrative and was more of, I mean, and it worked more with, uh, the other shorts it, yeah it, it worked it, like it worked with them that's a I good feel way like of in the that, original yeah. vhs that whole the whole story with the house just didn't it's, it's just, just somebody like sitting in a room excuse to move yeah. it to the next vhs yeah. tape it's just somebody sitting in a room watching different tapes and in between you were like seeing stuff in the background happen whereas this actually like you said had a narrative and i and it definitely it takes it takes a trope and twist it at the end yeah that, that that's a yeah, it's about best I can say without giving anything yeah, away. All, all I can say uh, is that if you're a fan of uh, Videodrome, yes, and uh, even um, Evil Dead Trap, no, that is not an Evil Dead sequel. Um, Evil Dead Trap is very much like Videodrome. If you like either of those, then I think you will very much. Odds are you will like. Holy hell, it's uh, right up that you know it's it's very surreal, but at the same time it's very real and it's very um it's 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 definitely it's just kind of like i said it's punk rock and uh it, it's just in your face and it is what it is it's it's remorseless and it's it's a it's a very cold way to end the movie let me put it that way the way yes. it's, it's a very cold way to end it like a movie goes out on a note where you're just like well okay damn yeah. <laughs> i guess that's it and, and it was what a strong outing seriously like that 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 definitely the the wraparound story usually is kind of the filler story whereas i feel like yeah. the wraparound story completed this movie yes you feel me and yes, very much video drone, but I mean, who doesn't like who doesn't like Cronenberg, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. But uh, all right, so um before we talk to Jennifer, uh what would you rate VHS 94 out of 10? I'd probably give it a solid 7. Solid 7. I'm going to go I think I would do a 7.75. I think I'm right there on the 8 border. Um yeah, I uh I think that some stories are stronger than others and that's what stops it from obviously being higher but as a collaborative effort and as a whole effort it's it's everybody did a good job i like all of them there's nothing i I didn't dislike a single story um you know there's yeah like what i take away from vhs 94 is that i hope that some of these people like you know our guest today jennifer reader or Uh, timo timo yeah i hope people like this um you know get like their foot in the door to actually like do some real shit and get some trust with some companies get you know some like i hope that they get some spotlight on them and that they even maybe come back for another vhs film and do segments again you know i really hope that uh the hard work that the people put into this movie pays off and that they get some recognition because they all goddamn deserve it for sure um yeah i don't know there's really much uh else i can say although i will say i did like uh the vhs aesthetic looked pretty cool oh yeah absolutely um yeah and uh yeah okay so you know what let's talk more about holy hell with our guest jennifer reader today's guest is a filmmaker screenwriter and an artist she's known for her critically acclaimed short film a million miles away as well as the feature film knives and skin which you can catch on hulu most recently She did the wraparound story Holy Hell in VHS 94, which is streaming now on Shudder. 
John and I were just informed by the folks at Shudder that VHS 94 is actually an absolute blockbuster and is Shudder's number one premiere to date. Everyone's watching it. Welcome, Jennifer Reeder. Thank you for being on High on Horror. Ah, thanks to you two both. It's really nice to be here. How are things going with you? Uh, yeah, things are good. It was a quite a uh, quite a surprise to get the news today that that yeah the um, VHS ninety four was yeah like the kind of most popular Shutter premiere or something like that. I'm getting the words wrong, but yeah, that was pretty cool. And I think just a week ago, or maybe even less less than a week ago, it was a um, a New York Times um, critics pick and is uh, certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which is just seems c- kind of crazy to me. I mean, not because of, not because of the film itself, but because I'm sort of, uh, I feel like I'm more used to making films that fly a little more, um, under the radar, so to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and for the, for the movie to be so new and all this is, you know, just coming out, I'm sure that it's, uh, it's overwhelmingly positive for you. I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's really cool. I mean, you know, I, um, it's a project. I mean, I've never been involved in an anthology before, and so, you know, there's some hesitation going into, um, you know, putting, a, you know, putting, putting sort of like my name uh, onto a project where there's, you know, like you might be beholden to, um, you know, to how, the, how popular the other sections are. You know, I actually feel like the other sections are really strong. And I think that, you know, the wraparound has been notoriously hard going into the wraparound other wraparound directors were like, yeah, good luck. Nobody ever likes the wraparound. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, the reviews have, have showed that, that the, that the, you know, the reviews have been really polarizing around, um, around the, the wraparound. But I think that, you know, the other sections are so cool and I love, God, I love the VHS super fans, you know, who've just been waiting for, you know, the kind of next installment. And so, you know, the, the love that it's getting right now is just so cool. I'll take it all. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, look, you're on high on horror. So I have to ask you, do you smoke? Are you a smoker? Uh, I, I am not on a regular basis. Okay. How often do you smoke? Um, I would say, you know, on in, in like as a female, I would say it's a it's a it's a a monthly thing around around some things that happen consistently on a monthly basis. <laughs> and uh, what is your favorite way? Uh, do you like edibles? Yeah, uh, definitely. You like, yeah, edibles is my thing. All right, and um, okay, so um, before we get into your movies, I want to talk about um. You actually uh, are a teacher. You uh, teach in the School of Art and Art History at the University University of Illinois, right? Um, tell us about that. Yeah, so I've actually been um, at UIC for uh, quite a long time now. I mean, it was not something that that you know when I was younger, I thought I would want to be like a uni- university professor, <laughs> you know. But um, I. Uh, I was a teaching assistant when I was getting my master's degree here in Chicago at the School of the Art Institute. And, you know, even sort of like way back then, I really understood how important um, mentors were to young filmmakers and especially, you know, young female filmmakers or young filmmakers of color, you know, in particular, when I was in film school, 
And I kind of went to film school in an art school context, you know, so I never was in a really proper film school um, environment. But, you know, when I would look, when I was looking around as a young film student, you know, there were not a lot of women, um, like not a lot of American women in, in indie film, let alone like American women doing genre. You know, I mean, we all knew about Mary Shelley, you know, and Frankenstein, but that's not, you know, I mean, that's, I could align myself with like mentors in terms of a kind of, um, you know, women in genre, um, in literature, but you know, there was nobody, I didn't have any, any, um, you know, female film professors, um, both, you know, or at least as an undergrad. So, you know, I mean, part of what I feel like makes me a, a better filmmaker and certainly fulfills me as like a human on this earth is, is, um, education and, and mentoring. And, um, it also keeps me fresh. You know, if I have to, if I'm teaching a screenwriting class, I never just use the exact, I never like recycle the exact same syllabus. You know, I always think like, okay, what's like, you know, an older film that we, that I haven't screened before that I need to revisit that I need to think about, or what are like brand new films that have just come out that I really want to, you know, um, talk about in terms of, um, you know, in screenwriting and even, you know, where I teach at UIC, it's a really, really diverse undergrad population. And so sometimes, you know, I kind of throw the syllabus out when I meet my class, you know, and I'm just like, oh, wow, there's, you know, this is a really different, kind of group of students than I thought I would have. And, and I, I try to be real nimble in terms of what we, what we want to talk about, but it, it makes me a better filmmaker because I'm always, uh, you know, because of my teaching, I, I, uh, I have to watch a lot of films and kind of stay up on those conversations. And I love having the conversations with students, you know, some of whom I'll, I'll show something and they're like, that was garbage. You know, I mean, I make them be more articulate than just saying that was garbage. (laughs) But I want to know what, you know, I want to know what um, young filmmakers think and I want to know what their influences are. And I want to know, you know, how um, how the other, you know, how like uh, GIFs or TikTok or any of the other kind of like teeny tiny, you know, like ways that um, that young people are experiencing like moving image, how that's influencing, you know, what they're writing or what what the films are that they want to make. But that's that's awesome. Uh, but I gotta say, you sound hella busy. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps me out of jail, you know. I mean, I gotta stay busy, or, or I would. It would be too easy for me to get myself in trouble, you know. Like it's what is it like the 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 devil will always find something for idle hands to do. So I keep my hands busy. Yeah, yeah. It's like idle hands will do the devil's work or that's something right, like that's that. Right, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um. Well. Uh. uh so. I got to ask you, what made you uh, want to get into filmmaking? What was your inspiration? So I actually, you know, I came to, um, to undergrad. I mean, I was always somebody, my mom is a film lover. And so, you know, I, I, uh, and my, you know, I, I always had, um, there was always somebody with a camera in my household, you know, like a super eight camera or when like pro, you know, prosumer, you know, video cameras became available. I mean, those were for home movies, but it was still the case that somehow I had a family who was really interested in, in kind of in, in recording at least our, you know, our, our, um, family events. And so having a camera in our, in our home in general was, um, you know, was maybe a different kind of experience. But then when I was a freshman, um, in college, I, 
I took a sculpture class because I thought, oh yeah, well, you know, the art department, that's where I'm going to kind of find my misfits. And um, I, well, it turns out I'm a terrible um, sculptor, but the, and the, um, <laughs> the instructor was like, you know, I, and I, he's, you know, I was, I was actually a ballet dancer for a long time, like from, um, you know, a young age up actually through college. And so my sculpture instructor was like, um, you know, I know that you have this dance background and, uh, you know, there's a class that's being offered next semester. That's a kind of a performance art class, you know, that might be something better for you than sculpture. And so really on a whim, I took that class and it, it was not really a performance art class. It was kind of a video art class. And so, um, you know, I picked up the, the, uh, you know, the little prosumer, um, you know, high eight camera that my mom and dad were using just to sort of document graduations and birthday parties and started, you know, making videotapes. And, and it was like, I had recovered a phantom limb. I mean, honestly, that sounds so like bold and romantic, but it really, you know, it felt like, ah, this is the camera in that moment felt like a real extension of, of like my, you know, my mind's eye and sort of my, you know, my heart. And, um, and I, and I still very much think that my, my history as a dancer is helps me in like, you know, blocking actors for a scene or the way that I, um, use music and, and, and edit to, um, to the rhythms of a, you know, of a song that's maybe part of the score or something like that. And that was, you know, I was a kid, I was like 17 or 18 years old and, and, um, I hope this filmmaking thing works out because I, I don't, I don't have, I, I can't do many other things, you know? So I never looked back after I picked up that camera for the first time. Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's, so you had an immediate connection. That's awesome. Like you can, you can pinpoint when you picked up the camera and when you were like, this is what I want to do. Oh, that's absolutely. Cool. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is like, I also very coincidentally, it was like two things colliding at the same time. I got a job at the, uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, um, which is a, which is a, it's a big kind of sprawling metropolis, but it, it's also kind of a college town, you know? So I grew up right on the edge of campus, lots of, you know, like, uh, head shops and, uh, you know, a weird artsy movie theater, you know, I mean, record stores. I mean, I was able to access kind of counterculture pretty, pretty easily as a teenager. And I started working, um, at the end of my senior year of high school at this movie theater that was like the art house movie theater, you know, that, that showed all sorts of really cool stuff. They also had like a 24 hour horror marathon, a 24 hour sci-fi marathon, and so I was working at this movie theater sort of at the same time that I, you know, um, picked up this camera and, and all of a sudden I was both, um, you know, the, the sort of maker of, of movies, but also just surrounded by, um, by movies that were also, uh, you know, not, it wasn't a big cineplex, you know, there were the, there were movies that were being made, you know, kind of on the, on the fringe, which really, um, you know, which really spoke to me so much. And so, yeah, it was like those, those two things became, you know, became deeply, deeply, um, you know, influential, but it was absolutely, you know, coincidental. It was like, you know, lightning strikes once. Yeah. It was just meant to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
look, you write too. You've written a lot of uh, screenplays, and uh, so like, see, my thing is, um, I always wanted to direct a movie. You know, I've I've been a movie I've a cinephile since I was a kid. I've always wanted to direct a movie, but I'm not a people person. I just don't like people. And to me, like directing <laughs> is being in front of people and being around people, and I don't want to do that. So I like writing because I can just kind of be alone in my own headspace. So how is? I guess you answered my question with how much you love directing. I guess you like that more, but um, like how much? Like what's your love of writing? What's your passion for writing? Well, I think I started, I think I started writing and I, well, I would also say that, you know, kind of in the way that I sort of taught myself how to talk, you know, taught myself how to shoot and edit. Um, I, I taught myself how to write and I taught myself how to direct my origins as a filmmaker are really in the art world, you know, so I, spent a lot of time making much more kind of abstract work that lived in galleries and museums, you know, and um, I had a lot of success uh, early on in that world, but it was never satisfying. It's, it, you know, it tends to be kind of elitist and sort of closed off and, and it, and, and, and it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't really embrace, you know, stories. So um, when I pivoted away from the art world to make narrative films, it was really up to me to figure out, you know, who I wanted to be as a screenwriter, who I wanted to be as a filmmaker. Um, and again, because I didn't have mentors as a film student, I just started, you know, thinking about like, well, what is the film that I would have wanted to see as a teenager? Or what is the film that I want to see now? You know, like what is out there that's, or what is, what is in me that's not out there, you know? And, um, and so I, yeah, I just started, you know, kind of in a John Cassavetes sort of way began, you know, kind of doing some, some improv exercises with friends of mine who weren't, who, who were also not actors, but were real characters, you know, people who were like the class clown, you know, someone who's like, yeah, I'll tell you a story, you know? And I was like, okay, I want you to take that character and I'm going to put you in a scenario with this other person who likes to tell a story. And we're going to, we're going to shoot it a bunch of times and work and work it out and then maybe write it down and then shoot it again. And, and, um, and that's sort of how I started. And, and, and then, and that felt like such a good process. I really wanted then to be able to truly author, um, the, my films, you know, so I was writing them, I was directing them. I was, uh, sometimes I was in them, you know, I was in front of the camera sometimes, but I did the art direction. I was cutting my own films. I was doing all the sound design. I was like my own little sweatshop, you know? I mean, I'm happy not to be, <laughs> you know, not to be my own little sweatshop anymore. But um, but I but I, it feels really good to, at the end of the day, you know, even with something like Knives and Skin, you know, which is a long, which is a kind of a long film even for a feature, you know, that feels at the end of the day kind of like handcrafted, you know, from, from um, you know, from my heart and my mind. And, you know, I hear what you say about directing. I mean, I'm actually, uh, you know, I'm an introvert. I'm not someone who loves crowds or loves, you know, being around a lot of people. But, you know, my directing isn't, is not really like that. You know, for me, directing is like, I actually am just with the actors, you know, or I have smaller conversations with, you know, my director of photography or, you know, it's like one-on-one conversations. It's never me with a huge with a huge group of people, even when I've, when I've worked on films where there is, where we have like a hundred extras. I mean, I pass the, 
the bullhorn, like the first time I had to do that, somebody passed me a bullhorn and was like, okay, you like literally, or like a megaphone or whatever. Right. And said, here's how you, to direct the extras. I was like, nope, the first AD or the second AD can do that. Like, I'm not going to take on directing a (laughs) hundred extras, you know? And that was my prerogative at that point. I was like, I'm going to talk to these four people. And it's not, it's not like, um, you know, I don't want to come across as like, a diva who's like, I shall not talk to the extras, you know, but I was also like, I can't, that's not, that's, I guarantee you that my, that they don't need my direction. You know, um, the first or second AD can absolutely, you know, handle that, you know, handle that job. I really like the intimacy of directing and talking one-on-one to actors about their characters and their scenes. And that was the same case, even with VHS. I mean, you know, I was like, you know, it wasn't, it was a group of, you know, seven, seven people, maybe. I mean, it wasn't a huge group, but I still had really, you know, smaller conversations, you know, with all of them about, about the, you know, about their, about their roles. Well, um, so like, don't you find as a writer and director that there is a trade-off in a sense of like, you'll write something and then when you're going to like film it or as you're filming it, you realize, oh, this is, we can't do this or you do do it and then it doesn't make it into the movie. Isn't there like a trade-off of like, you know, you're, damn, like I love writing, but this didn't make it in or I love the movie, but I wish I could have made this scene. It's kind of like a, it's like, like, like what you were saying about, you know, you, you wrote your own narrative. You have to love what you're writing in order to love what you're directing. But I'm sure, you know, there's a trade-off with that as well. Yeah, it's it's wild. I mean, you know, I think it's like you conceive of one film and then you write another film and then you um, like direct another film and then in post-production it becomes another film. You know, I mean, it's and you have to be like you have to let some things go and be really um, a different kind of nimble, you know, to say, oh, huh. because I it's <laughs> I always go into production with the script thinking like, wow, this is perfect. I'm not, I'm not being bold right now or like, but this is a perfect script. Everything is exactly where it should be. And then, you know, I get on set and I'm shooting it and I'm like, oh my God, like, why did he, why that's a, that line did not work at all. Or like, why would he, why are we shooting? Why, why did this thing happen before this other thing? Like so many things become like reveal themselves um, on set. And then the same, then the whole thing gets kind of turned upside down again, even in post-production where I think again, like, wow, yeah, we should just cut out that line. I don't even know why I wrote it. Why did, why did we record it? Um, and I mean, that's how I work. Maybe there's other directors who are like the way that I conceived it was exactly how I wrote it, which is exactly how we directed it, which is exactly how it is. But I don't think that's very much fun, you know, and I don't think that that's really leaning into the curiosity of, of, of what any storyteller should, you know, should do. I stay really nimble and I stay true to, I mean, at some point it's like the film tells me what it should, should be. And I don't mean that to sound like, you know, trippy or hokey, you know, I mean, um, but it's like, at some point the film itself becomes this, you know, it's, it's a different, it's separate from me and it's, and it tells me, you know, what it, what it needs to be. Um, and it, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it, that always surprises me. You know, there's, there's always, a, I mean, I, this is exactly what's happened every single time that I've made a film, whether it's a four minute film or like a two hour film. Um, 
it always surprises me in that moment where I'm like, wow, oh, wow, I didn't think that was going to happen. Or, oh, gosh, yeah, we got to cut that line out. I didn't see that one coming. But at the same time, um, I love those moments of pivot, you know, and those moments of um, of surprise. It's like all part of the creative process for me. Yeah, and uh, I that that makes total sense. Um, and, and I want to go back, though, and I wanted to say something. I don't think you sound uh, like a diva at all for not wanting to talk to extras. I 100% <laughs> would be the same way. I feel like if... Uh, if I were, uh, if that were me, I feel like I would tell my wife, like, go talk to them. I'm awkward. You know what I want, you know? Yeah, like I, yeah. So I understand exactly. I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, but, um, but yeah. Um, so you, uh, let's go, let, I want to talk about, uh, knives and skin for a moment. Um, I personally, I think that that movie is so good. Uh, I actually watched it again with my wife last night just to prep for this interview. So it's my second time seeing it. And uh, to those who haven't seen it, it's about a teenage girl's disappearance and the effect that it has on the people of the town, especially the other teenage girls. Um, so I have to ask you, Jennifer, um, are you a David Lynch fan? Because I see a lot of, like, I see a Twin Peaks undertone there. And I just immediately, like, I can, I just saw it. I was like, I got to ask. I, I didn't look anything up. I don't know if you're a Lynch fan. I don't know if you ever said anything online. But watching the movie, I was like, I, this feels like, like a, this feels like it was inspired by Twin Peaks. Yeah, I I, I'm, I actually am, um, like, a David Lynch um, super fan. But I have to tell you that. Nailed it. That, that, but, but Knives and Skin was, was actually way more inspired by River's Edge. You know, this. Oh, oh I this, see that though. This Crispin Glover, um, Keanu Reeves film from like. Right. Uh, God, when was that made? Like in the mid 80s? It was like the early 80s. Yeah. yeah. Like that was, that was early, early. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Because here's the crazy thing. So I watched Twin Peaks when it, with the first iteration of Twin Peaks when it first came out. And then I did not watch Twin Peaks again until um, Knives and Skin was finished and I was touring around with it because it was getting the reviews that there were so many comparisons to Twin Peaks. And I was like, I should watch Twin Peaks again. Um, <laughs> I mean, but having said that, like, I really, um, you know, maybe there's more of a connection to, for me, with Knives and Skin to something like Blue Velvet, you know, which is like a small town, you know, somebody finds an ear. There's just this like dark, there's a portal to the, to a, to a sort of a dark world in, in blue velvet. And that happens in, in twin, in twin peaks as well. But in terms of the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the upheaval that the, the the uh, like a, a you know a dead girl found by the water um that kind of scenario was much more uh inspired by something like um yeah river's edge but no i but ultimately i love i love how david lynch um leans into the surreal and i love his the way that he really understands that cinema is artificial you know cinema is um an art form and that you can write awkward dialogue. You know, you can write trippy dream sequences. Um, you can um, introduce, you know, main characters in the last, you know, third of the film. And you can suggest that um, small town, that small town American, um, small town America is the portal to the fourth dimension. You know, I think that there's always a way that he can um 
you know, can can introduce a kind of parallel world. I mean, even something like Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway. Lost Highway might be my favorite film, actually, of his, you know, in the way that that at some point that whole film kind of flips upside down and you enter a kind of a parallel world. And I, I understand that there's people who cannot handle that sort of anti-logic in a film, but I absolutely love it. And um, I didn't try to introduce the that sort of you know a parallel world in knives and skin but I definitely wanted to um you know to lean into the surreal I mean I'm also influenced by the other David David Cronenberg you know who also you know kind of deals with body horror in a very interesting you know weird intellectual uh, intellectual way absolutely John and I are huge Cronenberg fans absolutely yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, and I would say um, that not that yeah. we know, I mean, we can talk about this later, but I would say that my section of VHS was deeply influenced by Videodrome. I'm sure John is going to bring that up to you. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll let that, um, I'll, I'll let that so, go a moment, a moment more. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so uh, I like how you said earlier, how like the movies, um, like your movies kind of tell you what they're going to become. Like in a way they start to grow organically, like from the seed, the the idea that's planted the seed to like, once it's there and you're in the cutting room floor and this scene's not making it. And this scene is making it. I, I, I really appreciate that. Like, this is why we interview people. I really like hearing those things because to someone who like me, who might be a filmmaker one day, like it might be a shitty backyard movie, but I might give it a chance, but still I know things like this and I hear things like this from people. And it gives me like an idea to not feel like I'm just out there, like just lost lost you know so i i like hearing how things can grow organically that was that was uh definitely cool to hear about that uh that's not something i hear but everybody always has everything pre-planned it's like like you said like you'll go onto a set and it's like you know we did uh scenes uh 8 12 and 24 today and that's a wrap and then you get people who are figuring it out as they go and that's the learning experience isn't it like figuring it out as you go and still making it work yeah i mean that's how i that's how i operate i do i don't do sto- i don't have i don't do storyboards ever. I've never done a storyboard. Um, I, or if I have done a sketch on a napkin, you know, it 100% gets lost or forgotten about. I mean, I love being able to show up on set and work with, um, I've worked with the same, the same DP a lot, Chris Rohano, um, cause we have a little bit of a shorthand, you know, and we kind of know what we both like and we can both come into, um, you know, a, come onto the set and, uh, re, you know, th- like talk through at the beginning of the day, like, remember, okay, here's what we're shooting. Here's, you know, we're doing these two, th- these four scenes or whatever. And, you know, I mean, there could be this incredible, uh, like light coming through a window or there could be, or even if you have all of the windows covered up and it's all going to be artificial light, there just could be this, like, you know, something that happened on the drive over that you're just like, Oh wow. You know, we have to shoot this at a really low angle. That's how we we're going to do it. And as long as it doesn't, you know, like add days to the schedule or like, you know, bump up the budget. I love still really letting it be in a creative and organic process. You know, I can't imagine anything otherwise. And you know, I get it that like at some point you have to decide like the lights are going to go here and the camera's going to go here because switching all of that stuff around can take hours. Um, but I like at the head of, you know, every day being able to change my mind 
and um, surrounding myself with people who are kind of like, she changed her mind. No problem, you know, <laughs> or, or vice versa or having Chris come in or the costumer, the production designer, the gaffer who's designing the lighting also having, you know, all the department heads coming in and saying, I've changed my mind, you know, and like, Hey, what if this happened? And we, and we can talk about it. You know, it's a real, you know, it's diplomatic, it's democratic, it's a negotiation. And, um, I will always leave room for those conversations because it's, it's always in, it's always in, um, in line with like the mission of making the best film possible, you know? Right. Right. And, and you can't always plan the best things that sometimes the best things just happen. That's just, that's just facts. I mean, they always, it's like the best things always happen, you know, by accident on some level, you know, I mean, let's just be for real. So I, I would, I want, I want to allow, I want to allow for yeah, that sort of like, you know, organic, organic path. Okay, well, um, uh, let's go back to Knives at Skin for a second. I wanted to say that uh, the thing that worked for me about the movie is the dialogue. Um, hmm. I was raised by my mom and sister, um, so I've always had an issue with how girls talk in movies, especially when it's guys writing dialogue for a bunch of girls. It usually stands out like a sore thumb. I'm like, it's just not genuine, you know? And uh, I, think, I think John Hughes was one of the few that got it right. Um, so more of a compliment than a question, but I just wanted to say good job because, you know, mm -hmm. the characters were well done and I could buy what they were saying. Hundred percent. Well, I appreciate that. And the and the the sort of the funny thing is that I'm I have I have three, I have three children, uh, which they're all boys, and um, so I can't rely on them at all for any suggestions <laughs> around dialogue. I would make a film where the the dialogue was just like, huh, what, no, okay. I mean, having said that, they're actually really smart, lovely, incredibly, you know great young men, but the way that, you know, the way that they communicate verbally is, you know, is, is, is different than the way that, you know, me as their mom, who previously was a teenage girl, um, communicates, but I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I still feel, even though I have like a mortgage and a job, you know, I, uh, I, I, I can access that like 15 year old in me pretty easily. Yeah, uh, well, like I said, good job. And um, uh, Knives and Skin was made in 2019 before the pandemic. And now, mm -hmm. now you're back at it. Uh, you have a few things going on in uh, 2021, including VHS 94. Um, how was it making uh, films with the COVID-19 restrictions in place? Well, I would say the hardest thing was doing VH, VHS 94 was that we, we shot it in, um, in Toronto. And so in... And I was there, I actually got called in really late to the process. So David Bruckner, who was actually supposed to direct the wraparound, got called off of VHS 94 to do Hellraiser. And so in the spring of 2021, the producers, Brad Miska and Josh Goldblum are really kind of, I'm, I'm sure they were kind of like racing around trying to find a director. I would like to think that I was the first person they asked, um, but there might've been others. I don't want to know about those others if there were. Um, so I got called in kind of after the train had left the station, Chloe had shot her section already. Um, Ryan and Simon were getting ready, were either getting ready to shoot them or had already shot them too, but I think they were actually getting ready to shoot them. And Timo didn't shoot until after me, um, but he was, you know, his, he's got that whole kind of Indonesian, um, you know, filmmaking sweatshop on his own. 
So I was kind of called in late. And at that point, the border, the US um, Canadian border was closed to non essential workers. So I had to have a letter that said I was an essential worker as a filmmaker, which seems kind of absurd. Um, and then there was a mandatory 14 day quarantine uh, to f- once I entered Canada. And so I had to, uh, you know, have a 14 day quarantine, you know, in Toronto and then for like a six day prep and a five day shoot, which seemed wacky. But once we started shooting, um, you know, it was, it was, I didn't, it was not bad. I mean, everybody wore masks, you know, we had like a COVID, um, uh, counselor or something that kind of like was constantly like rotating masks and, you know, hand sanitizer. We got tested for COVID every day. It was, it was not an interference. I was so happy to be back to work, you know, that I, um, it was, it was not a big deal. I think the hardest thing was actually just shooting in Canada and, um, having this, you know, kind of mandatory 14 day quarantine. And, and at that same time, the, the entire of, um, Ontario was back to shelter in place because they had had a huge uptick in, in cases there kind of at the end of April and into May. So that meant here's what, here's what, here's what Toronto did. Um, like all of the kind of big box stores, which on the one hand, like fuck big box stores, but like big box stores, um, took everything off of the shelves that they, that wasn't essential. So my costume designer, for instance, was going to go in and get like a bunch of, you know, undershirts or, you know, socks for the actors. And normally you could walk into, you know, any one of those stores and just get some packs of, of um, shirts or, or socks or whatever. And, but they, but all that stuff had been pulled off the shelves. So it was like only food or pharmaceuticals. And, Um, which is absurd. Like what if you are, you work at a hospital and you need new socks, like you couldn't, you had to order them. So everybody in Toronto was ordering everything and groceries, essential stuff, medication. And we were trying to order, you know, like eye blood and other weird stuff that we needed in particular. And thankfully everything arrived on time, but um, you know, it was just that part that part of, of shooting my section at least was, um, you know, was a real, was a, was a hassle. But once we got on set, it was, it was pretty rad. And actually the entire cast and crew ended up, um, kind of like bubbling up. Once we started shooting, we all stayed at the same hotel. So we would kind of all go to set together. We would shoot the day and then we'd all come back to the hotel and, you know, pick up our individually wrapped dinners and go back to our hotel, our little rooms and eat. Um, so there was not a chance that someone could, you know, leave set, go all the way back home, be exposed to, you know, someone in their, in their household and come back and bring COVID to set. And it was, this was also before, you know, the, the, um, the vaccination rollout had started to happen in the U S but not in Canada. Nobody was, you know, getting vaccinated in Canada. So, you know, that was also a kind of an interesting, um, wrinkle. So it was, it was, uh, the prep was, the prep was intense, but once we started going, it was, it was fine. And honestly, <laughs> like I, I, I kind of like the, uh, I, I, I appreciate social distancing on set, 
You know, I appreciate <laughs> like, don't touch, don't touch my shit, you know, like on set. Cause I mm-hmm. think that prior to this, you know, people were like up in each other's faces, you know, you'd crowd around video village or you'd crowd around, you know, the crafty table or whatever. I'm, I'm so happy to just say like, look, I need some room. You know, give me, give me, you know, I'm with you. <laughs> give me some social distancing. So I hope there are some things that I want to go back to the way it was prior. And there's a lot of things that I want to kind of like stay that we've learned from, you know, a kind of um, global pandemic. Um, did you watch any of the other three VHS films before um, doing your segment for the fourth one? I did. I got to watch ryan's and simon's and chloe's i mean they were not completely finished but i i got to watch all three of them in a pretty you know in their kind of post-production state the only one i didn't get to watch was timo's and he shot it after after mine also and i had inherited part i i inherited all of the actors that are all the actors had already been attached and i inherited you know a little bit of the story about a kind of swat team that raids a super like a what they think is a super a super drug lab and it turns out to be something else. Um, I wasn't, I, you know, I could have written something completely different, but I kind of liked that idea. And part of, part of that story was already existing in Ryan's section and Timo's section. So I inherited some constraints. Um, but I, but yeah, I, I had seen three, three of the four before I started shooting. Um, well, okay, so you usually do short films, though, so I imagine that doing a segment for VHS 94 had to come naturally. Yeah, I mean, I love thinking about, you know, I mean, I love the short form format, you know, the short film format, rather. And um, so, yeah, it was, and I had written, I kind of wrote the wraparound like a short film. And there's stuff that got um, cut out, you know, that I think when I read reviews that are so scathing, I'm just kind of like, Oh, we actually shot that. And then it hit the cutting room floor. So, um, but I get it. You know, the producers really wanted, I wrote something that was maybe it's like porn on some level. I think this kind of like, (laughs) you know, like I wrote too much foreplay and too much dialogue. And then, you know, the producers were kind of like, we just want the bludgeoning, you know? And so (laughs) I was like, Oh, but there could be t- a context to the bludgeoning, you know, and they're like, no, just get to the bludgeoning. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a interesting process again, r- writing this, you know, writing this wraparound with some inheriting some, some former, um, components, um, and then trying to make it my own and then, also because the wraparound is this thing that literally like wraps around the other shorts and trying to then cut it so that it, it, it did try to encapsulate the whole thing. Um, but yeah, short films. I mean, I love short films. I think it's a really still a very interesting format. It's not so appreciated in the U S you know, I think the U S filmmaking still thinks of the short film as like a calling card to the feature, but I've had so much success outside of the U S with my short films, like, you know, especially in Europe, I mean, you know, there are so many like hundreds of film festivals, you know, outside of the U S that are dedicated to short films and only short films, you know, where here there's a handful and they don't get a lot of press, you know? So, um, yeah, it was like, you know, I was like, yeah, I know how to do a short film, but then it, but then it became like, kind of like five short films because it got, you know, it got cut up, you know? So 
that was also, right. that was something that I was like not entirely prepared for, but I worked with the editor who I, who I adore. And, um, you know, I kind of did the best that I could on some level. I mean, I think it's still the case that, that, um, you know, the wrap, the wraparound is still a hard thing to, you, you know, it's like a delicate balance to sort of like not do too much narrative, but also not do not enough narrative. And, um, I don't know, out of the four VHSs, I hope that this is everyone's favorite wraparound, even though I love and I'm friends with the people who've done the former wraparounds. I still want to win. <laughs> no, we, we love your wraparound. And, uh, honestly, it's the goriest thing you've done. Absolutely. I was by how much gore there was in it. I was like, bring it. I'll bring, let me, let me crack someone's head open. <laughs> well, um, okay. So, uh, lastly, before I send you over to John, um, in your other movies, you touch up on serious issues that are personal and attached with a lot of emotion, like a million miles away and knives and skin. So without giving away spoilers, because, you know, VHS 94 is still so new. What, what was the inspiration behind Holy Hell that made you decide to just throw all that away? Well, so again, I, I, you know, I, um, I inherited this cast, which involved, which, which included two women. Um, and, and they, in the, and so I inherited two, two different scripts. One that was written by David Bruckner, one that was written by Simon Barrett in which the two female characters, Petro and Nash had a very different outcome, you know, in both of their scripts. And, you know, I mean, I consider myself a feminist filmmaker. I love thinking about like feminist horror, female representation in horror. So I thought, oh, okay, I've got these two rad women. I'm going to figure out what their, I'm going to figure out what their, their trajectory is, you know, through this kind of warehouse raid and then kind of move back from that. So, um, that's kind of where I started, but literally also I had just rewatched Videodrome, you know, as I mentioned, probably a week before Josh called me and I was just like, God, this film is so good. It's like, it's got all this great kind of vintage energy, but it's so fresh still and so weird and so gross. And, you know, just, I mean, you know, like James, James, you know, James would like whipping a television set, you know, with Debbie Harry coming in. And out. I mean, it's so fantastic, fantastical and fantastic. And anyway, so, and, and knowing that this, that the whole, you know, the whole franchise of VHS and found footage, I just felt like I wanted to do something that was like meta, you know, like, okay, what if there's these, these, you know, these, these like female SWAT officers who are being, um, you know, really marginalized within their, within their unit. And, but we realized that at some point, you know, the whole thing flips around and, and we realize that they are, you know, that they're like, a running a cult of underground, you know, video production where it's where the drug is the video signal, you know, the drug is this analog, you know, RGB, you know, energy or whatever. And that's ambitious, you know, for a wraparound. And I think that some of it's there. I mean, it was all there on the page and we shot all of it. A lot of it got taken out at some point. Cause again, the producers were like, it's gotta be like, where's the action? Where's the action? It, you know, and, um, and I'm used to being able to have to take time and carve out, you know, like the context and, and introduce, 
awkward dialogue and and this kind of a thing. And I think the found footage format or specifically found footage in VHS, you know, wants to move a little bit faster. Um, I mean, I still think that there's parts missing that I would have liked to get to, um, you know, to put to put back in. But I but I but I really appreciate that, you know, there's something about the wraparound that's very final girls, you know, and um, I'm always kind of trying to fight against fight against this, you know, the idea that there's that the trope of a horror film is that, you know, girls and women are stalked, you know, attacked, killed, maimed, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I was like, yeah, I can do something here that like leans into final girls that leans into the idea of like women, these two women kind of controlling the content of media, you know, that maybe they are responsible for all of these films, all of these tapes that have been found. Um, and, uh, and I, and uh, yeah, the, the sort of like the end bludgeoning, you know, and I, I won't give so much away cause it's, I want someone to be, I want people to be curious if they haven't seen it to be curious, like what is this end bludgeoning? That was really fun to shoot. Actually. It was like, I mean, going back to my life as a dancer, that was like choreography, right? I mean, we had like, a camera person, the actor, someone the controlling blood. I and mean, we did that all practically. So, you know, and there's, and everything, everybody, everything was covered in plastic, you know, cause it just got extremely messy and really, really good fake blood is really sticky and stains everything. So um, anyway, that was fun to shoot, but that took a lot of prep and, but I feel proud. I feel, you know, I feel proud of the, um, you know, of the general energy of the, you know, of the wraparound for VHS 94. Yeah, and uh, touching on uh, your comment about uh, final girls, I did like that line, we are the final girls and this is our final kill. Is that kind of where that came from, kind of fighting against the final girl trope? Yeah, and I, you know, and I think that that, that was a line that we actually ADR'd. That was, a li- that was not a line that was in the script. And it was conversations with... Um, you know, with Josh and Brad, where they were sort of like, well, we should make this kind of, you know, more obvious and sort of talk about that kind of like the, you know, final girls. And so, but I liked that idea, you know, I was like, yeah, let's like, let's talk about the kind of the, the, what, what final girls mean, you know, in the context of a horror film. And uh, I have to ask, you mentioned uh, you were from Columbus. Are you a Buckeyes fan? Oh my gosh. I mean, I no, I'm not. I mean, and I would say, I mean, or I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want you guys to cut me off here, but you know, <laughs> I mean, I grew up in a football town, right? So it was like every, of course. So kind of like every Saturday football game, I was just like, what the fuck is going on with these people? You know, <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I go home. My mom still lives there, and I, um, so was my, so was my editor, and I'm actually in post production for another film I shot this summer, and. I happened to be staying near campus on a football Saturday and I thought I had left my hotel early enough to avoid the football crowd, but I didn't. I was like, you know, driving through a sea of people in red shirts and, um, you know, the lawns with card tables and red cups and people doing shots at like 1030 in the morning, which I think at some point in my earlier life, I would have been like, hell yeah, let's do it. And I was just like, this is madness, you know? (laughs) Um, so I would say, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not a, I don't know. I'm an, I'm not a college football fan. 
in general. So I'll, I'll root for whoever you guys want me to root for tonight. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I like the Buckeyes and I, I wasn't sure if you were uh, a fan considering you went and worked at Illinois and their arrival of Ohio state. Well, I went to, but I went to Ohio state. I mean, that's where I went to undergrad. I, I went to Ohio state as an undergrad and then, you know, but where I, where I teach right now at UIC is um, thankfully we're like, assist we're considered a sister campus the one in chicago so we don't okay. even have a, a football team so it's so i i feel you know i feel real thankful of that you know and um you know i'm not even sure how much i like the chicago bears or i mean sometimes i feel be, i feel aligned with like the white Sox because i live on the south side of chicago so i feel kind of like i don't even know what they're the team is up to these days but i'm sort of just like oh the poor white Sox. south go south side chicago <laughs> all right well we'll get it back in here to uh vhs 94 uh how much freedom were you given to create your uh wraparound i mean really honestly the um you know the producers said that i could start start from the beginning i could recast it i could um you know rewrite the whole thing but like i said um the you know like ryan's section featured um one of the actors that i was already attached with who was also playing like a cop who sells guns to the militia people and um the way what timo had written also had a similar character he kind of changed his after i after i had shot mine not because of mine but um and then, you know, I was eager to get back to work as a filmmaker, but I knew that actors were really eager to get back to being, you know, in films again. So I really felt like it was not, it wouldn't have been fair for me to just like jettison, you know, all seven of those actors and kind of start the casting process over. So I accepted this kind of skeleton of, of a, um, you know, a SWAT raid on a drug lab that turns into something else with these actors. But I basically wrote the whole, I, I reinvented the entire wraparound and, you know, I, I mean, I had great conversations with, um, you know, with David Bruckner and Brad and Josh, you know, during the script writing process. And they were just like, yeah, go for it. I mean, Chloe wrote, you know, Chloe wrote storm drain, Ryan wrote terror, Simon wrote, you know, empty wake, Timo wrote the subject. I mean, what's also really cool is that we actually all wrote our own sections um, and I mean, I think what happens sometimes, what happens to the wraparound is also that it's not, it's actually not, it's, it's own short section. You know, it really is this thing that, that is like a little blip that you get to experience, you know, before the next film. So it's a hard, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out how much an audience is willing to invest when they come back from a short and when they're anticipating the next short um, and you know, how much they remember from, you know, what they saw, you know, in between the other shorts or whatever. So um, like I said, you know, radio silence, divide and conquer, you know, other people who had been inv involved in the previous wraparounds were like, good luck, you know, really just like good luck with the wraparounds. It's the wraparounds are hard and nobody likes the wraparound. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there was, uh, as you were saying, the character uh, from the short tears actually involved with Holy Hell. Uh, was there a lot of collaboration and working with any of the other directors? Yeah, well, we definitely had a conversation before I started shooting, you know, to say, like, I told Ryan that I wanted to incorporate, you know, wooden crosses. And I told Chloe that I wanted to incorporate the Channel 6 logo. And I told Simon that we had found a coffin that I wanted to incorporate. And then, you know, Timo and I had a great conversation around just the kind of meta-ness of like women making these videotapes. And then in his section, a sort of woman who, you know, whose own body is a video camera, you know, like we had had these kind of conversations around that connection to sort of surreal, the kind of surreal and the meta of the whole franchise of VHS. So, um, yeah, even though, like I said, I came in very late to the game, I was the last director to be attached. And like I said, after David Bruckner had to be kind of like yanked, yanked off to do Hellraiser. Um, so it was really important to have the conversation with the other directors to make sure that the, that as much as I possibly could, you know, make it my own, but, you know, make, make the wraparound in service to the other shorts. And uh, are you a fan of doing the collaboration kind of style of directing that comes with the anthology? I mean, I loved, I loved the conversations that I had with, with um, the other directors for sure. I mean, I think it would be, I wish there was more of that. I mean, I think that it still was, it still feels like, you know, four distinctive short films and then, you know, my little interstitial sections. Um, I, if I were to get attached to an anthology again, I would, I would want more of a connection. You know, I kind of love anthologies where, um, you know, maybe they, like they all take place in, in one hotel room or they all, they have something else that's like, that actually, you know, connects them all together. I mean, having said that, I still love an anthology. I love, you know, the Twilight Zone, Creep, Creep Show, you, you know, these other um, ABCs of death, these kind of things, you know, where really the, it's all very um, disparate. Because I love, because I do love short films, even as a, not just as a maker, but as a consumer. Um, but if I were to do an anthology again, I would actually want more collaboration. I would love, I would love to do an anthology where, for instance, like more of the actors were borrowed from each other. You know, I love what Fear Street did with like, you know, where it's like spanning time, but the actors are, you know, you have this similar actors and I don't know, it just feels like more like parallel worlds. I mean, I love that. Again, that's kind of a, a kind of a David Lynch thing. You know, I would love to do an anthology where it felt like there was, um, that there were, uh, different worlds within it or like this you know some of the things like a uh, mystery train or night on earth those two jim jarmusch films which it's one writer and director but they kind of feel like an anthology you know even though it's one person but they're different stories that kind of happen in these in these kind of parallel time zones and uh wh well what challenges did you find to be different versus uh making the film on your own like a or like a feature length versus doing uh, the anthology mm -hmm. i mean i think was I think it was the biggest challenge was was joining um, this franchise that sort of already had expectations and a fan base. You know, I remember having conversations, you know, with um, with Brad and Josh about uh, in post production. You know, where you know there were these there was this kind of a a, a really 
you know, productive sort of push and pull where I would say, well, oh, I think that this, this moment should stay. And, you know, a kind of a counter comment that was like, well, that's not really part of the VHS world, you know? So I think there was this, like coming, coming into not an anthology, but coming into an anthology franchise, you know, where there's been three other VHSs and that, that there's the potential that, you know, VHS fans expect something, you know, from this, the latest VHS. And I, of course, was like, well, let's find new fans or, you know, like, why do we have to please the old fans, you know, or can't the old fans evolve? I'm sure that, you know, like the old fans have evolved. Um, so I think that that, you know, the sense of, of, um, maybe from the producer's perspective, this idea, like if it's not broken, don't fix it, you know, and, um, me, me also saying like, oh, you know, I don't know. I think there's ways that we can, you know, rethink, rethink found footage or re yeah, rethink, the you know the context of um of you know gore etc um but uh it was still you know it, it was still a really productive um you know learning experience for me as a filmmaker a challenge a challenge that i that i um would rise to again you know that i was i'm very happy that i said yes i mean there was a moment where i knew it was time sensitive to say yes or no and i was just like you know, I talked to my manager, my agent, you know, and I said, I think this is something that could be really cool to do, not just because I was desperate to like make a film in 2021 after the whole of, you know, the, the disaster of 2020. But, you know, I was like, I, you know, Knives and Skin has a very particular tone and a very particular voice. And it felt important, you know, for me to say, that's not the only thing that I can do. I could do something that's actually much more commercial, much more convention, conventional horror and still like, so my DNA, you know, into that world. And I mean, it worked out. I'm, a lot of people kind of thought the VHS, there's a lot of opinions that it was kind of floundering, but this one, I mean, even, even getting good critic reviews, I think I saw it had like a 95 on Rotten Tomatoes. So it went real well, and uh, I have to say, you brought up Videodrome, and that was one of the questions I had, because I could definitely see the influence uh, for Videodrome. And I, it's my favorite Cronenberg movie. The technology in the movie is dated, but the message is, it's always relevant, and, and that's what I love about it. Uh, the staticky voice that uh, counts down from 10... Um, it immediately made me think of the dream sequence from Prince of Darkness. Mm -hmm. uh, was was that influential in that? You know, it's funny. I, I didn't actually, um, you know, kind of like Twin Peaks. I didn't rewatch Prince of Darkness until this summer, you know? So I hadn't, um, I wasn't thinking about Prince of Darkness when I, when I did that, mo when I did that. And of course, like that kind of like voice effect was done in post-production, but then, um, but I'm sure it was in there, you know, and I just couldn't figure out like why I thought that that was the right move. And then I rewatched Prince of Darkness this summer and I was like, oh yeah, obviously. So I think there's like, you know, it's like we come to a film with, with not always the references that we can point to, but, you know, I had seen that film that something in there had stuck with me as, um, uh, you know, a, a moment of like otherworldly, other creature, you know, um, possession, 
Um, I could go on and on. Uh, and, um, but yeah, it's funny. I, I hadn't, re- I didn't, I rewatched that the summer after I had come back from, from Toronto and I was like, yeah, that's in there too. <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, once I once I heard the voice, like that was the first thing I thought of was that shared dream sequence. From yeah, it. It, it came off well. And you've mentioned David Lynch and uh, David Cronenberg as influences on you. Are there any other directors that had an influence on you and your style? Well, you know, I mean, there's a um, you know, there's a surreal a surreal filmmaker Maya Darren who actually I have that if you can see there's my Maya Darren doll. She's right back there. Um, but maybe, you know, no one else can see that but us. But, she, you know, <laughs> she was a woman who was a dancer um, a turned filmmaker who made films in the 40s, like really trippy, surreal stuff. And, you know, I just appreciate I appreciate, you know, filmmakers who um, who can lean into the surreal um, you know, I, I, I also really, uh, you know, as problematic as Roman Polanski's personal life is, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I love Rosemary's baby. I love repulsion. You know, I mean, I love knife in the water. I think there's some, you know, that's really fantastic. I love, um, I'm actually a big Hitchcock fan in terms of, um, of style. Um, and, but more recently, even, um, you know, speaking of Cronenberg, you know, Brandon Cronenberg's possessor is absolutely brilliant. I loved um, St. Maud. Um, you know, I think Jennifer Kent's Babadook and Nightingale are just so, you know, um, so interesting. I cannot wait to see what, you know, I haven't, I have not seen Nia DaCosta's um, version of Candyman, even though lots of my friends worked on it because they shot it here in Chicago, you know, like that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm real eager to see that. Um, so, you know, I try to, uh, I don't know that I would say saying that I'm a cinephile would mean that like anybody could, could throw out a name and I'd be like, yes, uh, let's talk about that film or that filmmaker. But I do watch a lot, a lot, a lot of films and that, that really range. I mean, just to, just this afternoon, I rewatched, um, Black Sunday from, um, 1960, this great vampire, witch black and white film that, um, Oh my gosh. It's just so excellent. You know, and I love the original, um, Carrie. I love Brian De Palma, you know, sort of like everything that, you know, that he's done. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's the list, the list is, uh, the list is long. Um, and I try to, you know, I try to, uh, I try to pay homage to filmmakers that I, that I love, not like, you know, bite their style without, um, without acknowledging, you know, the sort of the trajectory that, you know, that I, that I potentially am, um, you know, am a part of, but, you know, I, I watch films, um, constantly and from like all from sort of like every, you know, every decade in one day I could watch something very old and then I, I could watch something, you know, really, really new again. And, you know, in terms of even, even found footage. I mean, when I was, when I got attached to VHS 94, I I had to go back and rewatch VHS one and two. I mean, I'd seen them when they had first come out, but I hadn't, I hadn't watched them again. And it led me to rewatch the legend of Boggy Creek, this like really wild kind of, it kind of doc about a, like doc drama about like a, 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 um, a kind of Bigfoot sort of 
creature that was something that I had seen when I was little, you know, that just like totally terrified me or like rewatching the, you know, the first iteration of, of Blair Witch, you know? So, um, I try and do, I try and do my research, but I definitely, I like filmmakers who, um, you know, lean into the surreal. I love filmmakers who take some risks in terms of their visual storytelling, you know, and think about cinema as art and that it doesn't have to, it doesn't always have to feel totally grounded in like the real and what's believable. You know, if you do it the right way, then you can, then you bring your audience through that wormhole. And I love as a, as a, as um, I love doing that as a maker, but I love doing that as a, as a watcher of films. I want to go someplace else for two hours. I don't want to stay here for two hours. I hear you. And uh, with, without picking your own, what was your favorite uh, short from VHS? Oh, I love Timo's section. I love the subject. I just thought that was just so surprising, so wild. So uh, the way that was shot was like, I just think that was super innovative in terms of dealing with found footage, but also the kind of, I love Frankenstein stories. You know, I really, really love Frankenstein stories. Um, and not just because Frankenstein, the, the original monster was written by a teenage girl. Mary Shelley was 19 when, you know, um, Frankenstein was published, but um you know, I love a Frankenstein story and I thought Timo's was like so genius. And I just, I love sort of his, his, his way of kind of gonzo filmmaking, you know, I mean, he's there in Jakarta with his whole crew of kind of like friends and family, just doing things kind of like, um, total, you know, rogue, rogue style. It's so radical and punk. I love it. So yeah, I loved the subject. Yeah, that was a good one. And I felt so bad for Jono at the end. I know. Oh, my gosh. And well, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. And uh, do you have any upcoming projects? I do. I've actually got another Shutter original that should be coming out in 2022. After I came back from Toronto, I... Um, I returned it to Chicago and I shot a feature length film called night's end. We shot it over 13 days. Um, it's a, it's a, a story about a, 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 like a newly divorced single dad. Who's a, who's got these kind of shut in tendencies. He moves into a new apartment, which is like haunted by a really um, malevolent ghost. So, you know, it's that sense of sort of being not wanting to go outside the fear of, of leaving your apartment. Also the fear of staying in your apartment, um, and it's got some, you know, it's got some, some sort of screen based, um, moments. He's, he, we stay with him in his real life, but he only communicates with other people, um, you know, through video conferencing. So, um, even though I hope that this will have like a nice kind of festival launch, I actually think that it'll be a really special, um, film once it starts streaming on shutter for people to watch on their own screens. Cause it's got a real claustrophobic, you know, kind of sense. And then I'm shooting, um, I'm shooting a film called perpetrator in the top quarter of 2022, um, which is a, uh, it's kind of a coming of age cat people. So it's a real nuanced sort of shapeshifter story properly, um, proper horror. There's, there may, there, there may in fact be, you know, a follow-up bludgeoning, um, maybe even a decapitation. I don't want to ruin it too much, but, um, yeah, I've got, I, you know, it's like the, you know, 
it was great to get back to, to filmmaking with VHS 94, but you know, it's like, it's been, I shot another one right, you know, right after it. And I've got another one at the top of 2022. So I'm staying busy and, and it's, they're all in the shutter family. And uh, where can people uh, keep up with you online about your projects? Uh, I'm on Instagram under the Jennifer reader and which is a good way to follow me, but I also have a Vimeo page. I mean, if you, if you follow, if you want to see any of the short films, a million miles away that was mentioned at the top of this, but any of the short films that I've done leading up to, you know, I mean, you can watch them free on Vimeo. I actually still have a collection of short films on the criterion channel. So anyone who has a criterion, um, subscription can also see a bunch of the short films. Um, I did a film, uh, a very different film from other ones called signature move in 2017. That's on showtime and, uh, yeah, knives and skin is still on Hulu and VHS 94 is on shutter. Yes. It's, uh, it's set in all kinds of records on shutter. It's getting great reviews and, uh, we definitely thank you for joining us today. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Well, Drew and John, thank you so much. I am high on horror. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for tuning in. Thanks to Jennifer Reeder for joining us today. VHS 94 is amazing and you should check it out on Shutter now if you haven't. And it's pretty cool Jennifer is teaching future directors on top of being a director herself. And uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at High on Horror 420. You can also email us at highonhorror420 at gmail.com. And make sure to check out our website, highonhorror.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and have new guest announcements and episodes delivered right to your inbox. Well, that'll about wrap her up. Catch you later. Bye, everybody. <laughs>